Welcome to church here on Sunday morning at Calvary Chapel South Bay. If you turn your Bibles, because that's what we do here, uh, we turn in our Bibles to actually study the Word of God to Galatians chapter 4. And this morning, a message that I've entitled, The Tale of Two Covenants. We're going to dig into a piece of scripture that I think is unbelievably important for us because there's so much error that stems from the misinterpretation of passages like this, but this may be one of the chief among them to where people will hang their hat on a single word, um, wrongly translated, I might add, in my own humble opinion, uh, in the King James Version or in the New American Standard, if you happen to have one, um, we're gonna see a word that is the word allegory, and, and I'm gonna ask you a simple question as we look at this passage. Is there anything allegorical about this passage of scripture or was God intending to say something and did he say it in such a way that we can understand it? And if we can understand it, what's the Lord trying to tell us through this picture of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Hagar, and Ishmael? I'm pretty sure most of you in here today think that Abraham was a real person, amen? I do. I think that the entirety of your Bible is built on uh, him being the kind of the, the poster child for faith, amen? If you read the book of Hebrews, it certainly says that. We believe that Abraham walked on this earth by faith. And so when you look at this particular passage, which is the tale of two covenants, there's a little bit of a problem that we begin with here, and I want to pray and we'll Pick up here in verse 21 and take the first uh, four verses here and then we'll uh, take some time to talk about what I think is a problem for many. Father, thank you for your word and we believe, uh, just as Dr. Cooper rightly said, Lord, that uh, when the plain sense makes sense, we really shouldn't seek another sense from scripture. You were capable of authoring scripture so that it transcends time and so, God, we pray that you would speak your truth to us through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 21 here in Galatians chapter 4. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? He's basically saying, look, if you want to live by the law, you're going to die by the law. You're going to be judged by the law. Everything in your life ultimately you're gonna to have to be a law keeper, otherwise you're gonna be a law breaker. And that's gonna leave you in a really tough spot with God. Because ultimately the Bible says every last one of us is actually a lawbreaker. And if so you, you attempt to live by the law, then you have to have the penalty that the law is gonna bring in your life, and the penalty that the law will bring ultimately is simply God's judgment. And so the Apostle Paul says, look, let's think about this for a moment. And then he begins to speak of a very specific couple and their issues that they had. For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Now, did the Apostle Paul have the New Testament? Anybody want to venture a guess? The answer is no. So the only it is written he could have been referring to is the Old Testament. Amen? And in this case, it happens to be the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis that he's referring to. It is there, the first book of what the Jewish people would have called the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of Moses. 
And so when Paul says it is written, he's referring to exactly what he believed was the only word of God that existed at the time. Because the New Testament had not even been written yet. These letters would come along much later when Paul spoke these things, the word of God was the Old Testament. What does he say? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. We know where that is, and we're gonna look at it in a moment. One by the bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he who was of the free woman through the promise. Which things are, and if you'd circle it there in verse 24, if you have a King James version of the Bible, there is a word here that is, I believe, misinterpreted. It gives you the wrong impression, and I hope to explain this to you in the next couple of minutes. If you have a new King James, it says which things are symbolic. That is the right word. If it says which things are an allegory, an allegory is a fanciful story that is not necessarily true. Or it can be the truth told in such a way that it is no longer true. An allegory is not historical fact, but what is the Apostle Paul actually trying to say here? I believe he is making symbolism of a very specific life found in the Old Testament, the life of Abraham. So this is not an allegory. It is symbolic. For these are the two covenants. Were the covenants allegorical or were the covenants the old and the new? actual covenants made by God. They're covenants made by God. So it is not, again, a fanciful story that is open to misinterpretation. There is a reference here to literal history and an event. And so he's using that in an illustrative way. For these are the two covenants. One from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. And so we'll end there for a moment, and I want you to see this. So Paul is not making an allegorical statement. He is making a true statement about history and about our spiritual history as we know it from the book of Genesis. And so the New King James, if you have one, rightly translates this word instead of transliterating it, which is what the King James translators did. The King James translator just simply looked at the Greek word, allegoreo, and they said, it's got to be allegory. But they left out the primary way we interpret everything. We interpret scripture by scripture, and we look at the plain sense and the plain meaning. God meant what he said and said what he meant. And so when we have that, we should not then make it into something that it is not. And so if you leave allegory in place, then this could be open to a wide variety of ter interpretations, including that it isn't actually literal which is exactly what has happened throughout history. And so it's not a fanciful story, it's not fictitional. It doesn't have hidden meaning. God intended to very specifically say, let's talk about this for a second. What happened at Mount Sinai? Anybody know? It's where Moses received the law, amen? So Hagar is a picture of, an illustration of, what happens if you live by the law. If you're gonna try and relate to God, the Jewish people attempted to do that. It began at Mount Sinai. 
They had been delivered by God by grace and through faith. They came out of Egypt because the blood of the lamb had been spread on the doorposts and the lentils of their home. They were set free, not on their own accord. They did not do it by their own works. It was miraculous. It was grace-filled. Now they're in the wilderness. They go to Mount Sinai. They stand at the bottom of the mountain, and all of a sudden, the people are starting to want to go back to the flesh. And so what does God do in response to the flesh? He gives them the law. He says, let's try and work this out. I'm gonna give you some rules, I'm gonna give you some regulations, and let's see how this works. And guess what happens for about 2,000 years? It doesn't work. For by the works of the law, no flesh can be justified. And so I believe we have an analogy here, and it's the record of Abraham and Sarah. And the reason I'm pointing this out to you is the church for centuries has put forth several errors of thinking in that this is not historical fact, that we can simply take this as an allegory and we can make it, well, let's just make it a fanciful story. And all of a sudden you start to build up a legalistic church. And you say, well, it's not really about living by the law. It's just kind of maybe figurative. It's a, it's a nice story, but don't take it too far. It is that thinking that has led people, uh, like Pope Gregory in about 640 AD, to begin to say things like he knew who the Antichrist was, that there was hidden information in Scripture, that if you just understood the numbers behind the Greek letters, the study of numerology, that you could come up with secret truths, that the Bible didn't say what it mean, meant, and it didn't mean what it said, you needed somebody to come along and tell you, apart from the plain meaning of the text, this is what it actually means. That can lead you to all kinds of errors, including things like, Every ruler of the Soviet Union for decades was the Antichrist. Most every pope from Pope Gregory forward was announced at some point in time as the Antichrist. That in fact, all kinds of things have been said, well, you can't actually just read the text and get anything out of it, it's allegorical. Be careful about the use of allegory when you read your Bible, because for the most part, unless it clearly points to an allegorical meaning, it actually means what it says and says what it means. We take it from the plain sense, we take it from the plain meaning. Otherwise, just like you had under the Roman Catholic Church, the rivers Euphrates was basically a way for us to understand the outflowing of good manners. The journey of Abraham from Ur to the promised land was that of a stoic philosopher on a journey of thinking so that he could come to his spiritual senses. And yes, these are actual teachings of the church. This is what was believed. That the two coins given by the good Samaritan to the innkeeper symbolized baptism and the Lord's Supper. You see, we have to take scripture at what it says instead of trying to interject meaning into it. So what does this passage actually say? What are the historical facts? What was the Apostle Paul actually alluding to here? Well, it's really simple, actually. 
because you have the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, the first book of Moses, put together by Moses himself, believed to be by the Jewish people, centric to their understanding of God in the first place, and it mentions 20% of that book because the story of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Hagar and Ishmael occupy 10 chapters. It's not a little kind of side note in your biblical history. We know exactly what happened in the life of Abraham and Sarah because we were given those details pinpoint accuracy. Now, see, you could say, well, it's just like a family problem. Well, there's a little more than a family problem here. And there's a little more for us to look at. So let me give you a little historical walkthrough. At age 75, Abraham is called by God. Now, he's not exactly of good hiking age. Okay, if you wanted to take a 1,200-mile journey through the desert, you're not gonna go find 75-year-old people to start that. But that's what happens in Abraham's life. They wanted children. So here they are, they're 75 years old, they start the journey. At 85 years old, God says, you know what? I'm gonna give you a son. Abraham's like, mm, I don't know about that. Doesn't work out quite so well, so Sarah decides that she's gonna help God out, right? This is where the story gets really good and it starts to become a very clear picture of exactly the illustration and analogy that I believe the Apostle Paul is making here in the book of Galatians. So by their flesh, let's help God out. Let's bring in Hagar. At 86 years old, Hagar gets pregnant. Dumb Abraham, not taking spiritual leadership in his family, says, sure, honey, I'd like a second wife. <laughs> okay, if you say so. Was Abraham ever supposed to have a child by Hagar? The answer is no. So what would that be? That would be the fruit of his flesh and Sarah's flesh. It would be the lack of faith. It would not be grace. It would be the law says you can have another wife. It allowed for it. It was okay then. Well, we'll just go that way. I mean, God made it. Let's just help him. I mean, God's kind of slow right now. At 99, God speaks to Abraham and promises again that he's going to have a Sarah, have a, have a son through Sarah. His name's going to be Isaac. What does Sarah do when she hears this news? She starts laughing. Hence his name, Isaac, which means laughter. You see a little bit of a lack of faith there? You see a little bit of resting in the flesh and the law there? Could it be that Paul the Apostle is reminding us that the futility of the flesh is still with us. At 103, we find finally the weaning of this son that's born and the casting away of that son because there is no unifying the flesh and the spirit. It can't happen. And so the history is a very specific group of people that's being mentioned here. Now look at how it continues, verse 25. For this is Hagar, 
This is Mount Sinai in Arabia. Hagar represents what happened at Mount Sinai. The giving of the law. God saying, okay, if you're going to play by your own rules, I'm going to have to give you my rules so that you know that your rules are wrong and my rules are right. And corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is. In Jerusalem, at the time Paul writes this, the Jerusalem that now was, was the center of legalism. Amen? That's who was there. The Jewish people had put together a very, very, very advanced functioning set of rules and regulations that governed every aspect of life. And so the Jerusalem that they knew at that time was governed by the beginning of those 10 commandments given on Mount Sinai. That was the heart of it. Began with thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Notice what he says. And his bondage with her children. The law has always been bondage to its children. It's never not been bondage. The law always puts people under bondage. Legalism puts people under bondage. Trying to earn a good relationship or a right relationship with the Lord by any other means than grace is absolutely futile because you can't suppress your flesh enough. You can't beat it down hard enough. You're not gonna gain the final victory. You're always gonna come up short. And so that bondage of trying to earn that relationship, which is what the Jewish people had done for 1,500 years. They said, well, we'll just do this, 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 and this, and that's going to make sure that we're right with God. But when, but the Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. He's saying, look, if you're here and I'm talking to you right now, in, in Christ, we're actually free. The, the new Jerusalem is better than the old one, is what he's saying. For it is written, rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. It's giving a picture of the kingdom that is, that is God's kingdom. By the flesh, you can bear children. But God wants to bear spiritual children. He does so spiritually. And now we, Paul says, including himself, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. You see, the picture of this is, is some pretty deep spiritual truth. Anybody in here figured out that you're at war with your flesh? Have you figured out that laws can't actually change you? That began back in the garden. That was the problem with Adam and Eve. The crazy thing with Adam and Eve is they actually only had really one rule. Think about it. Don't eat of that tree. They had one rule. How many rules did they break? The one. Does that give you an idea of exactly how wicked the heart of man actually is? Think about where they were and what they were allowed to have. They had an idyllic environment. They had no jobs. They wandered around in the cool of the day with God. They got to hang out with the creator of the universe. 
They had one rule. And they couldn't keep the one law. They messed up on the one law. So now imagine that you have a system of them. Not just one, but by the time these words were written, about 613 of them. Things that you needed to do in a, in, in a way to be right with God, as far as they understood it. And guess what stood in the way? Their flesh. Just like your flesh stands in the way of you obeying God's laws. Amen? Anybody found out that you don't like actually preferring other people over yourself? That's your flesh. Your flesh doesn't like that. Your flesh likes to be first. Amen? So does mine. How many of you figured out that when somebody cuts you off, you are not going to think happy thoughts about them? That's your flesh, because those people are created in God's image and you should love them as the Lord loves them. And yet somehow in your heart and mind, you're thinking, no, not happy thoughts. It's not a Disneyland moment for you. <laughs> you, you. You see, what happens in our heart and our mind is we have to deal with the fact that no matter how many laws we do or do not have, we are going to figure out a way to break those laws. Connie and I were over at Red Lobster, we had a kind of a late lunch yesterday and they had the all-you-can-eat shrimp thing. My flesh revels in that. <laughs> and after the first, you know, you get two helpings, two different kinds of shrimp, and after I'd consumed those two, I thought to myself, I already paid for this, I can have more. My flesh was strong. My spirit, however, actually won out. It's like, that's gluttony, Jeffrey Eskill. <laughs> but there for a moment, it's like, I don't care if it hurts. <laughs> it tastes really good. And I've already paid for it. That's the way your flesh always responds to virtually anything and everything in your life. Your flesh wants to be first. There's a battle. That battle is still raging today. So what are the spiritual truths here? You had two sons. You had Isaac and you had Ishmael. One the father of the Arab nations, the other the father of the Jewish people. One born in bondage under the law and the flesh and one who was supposed to be the bearer of freedom and grace, amen? The Messiah came through Isaac, amen? So there's supposed to be a picture here that we can grasp and lay hold of. Isaac was born by God's power. Ishmael was born by flesh. Sarah said, I don't trust God. Hagar says, I don't trust God. Abraham says, I don't trust God. Let's do it ourselves." You see, so the picture here is the battle that you and I face. As Isaac grew, he would also grow in his relationship with the Lord. When he was first born, he was a child like everybody else. When I was a child, Paul says, I thought as a child, but now that I'm grown, I begin to see things a, a little bit more clearly in my own spiritual walk with the Lord. It's called maturation. It's called sanctification. You turn into a little bit better picture of Jesus in that sense. And so Isaac was weaned. He, he grew in the Lord. And what happened as soon as he started to grow in the Lord? Here comes the flesh, Ishmael, and persecutes him. 
You, you see, there, there is a battle and there always will be a battle. When you try and please God by the law, you're going to live in bondage. The only answer to that law is God's grace. That is not freedom to sin, that is freedom from sin. Let me be really clear. You're not free in God's grace to live as you please. You're free in God's grace to please the Lord. You're freed from the law. The penalty of it, the weight of it, the battles that go on in your heart and your mind for supremacy and for control. And so there's some lessons that we can learn from this. You see, Hagar versus Sarah is a great picture of the law that was on Sinai and grace. Because how did God respond to Sarah's mistake? Grace. Amen? Didn't God respond by grace? What would you? I think it's unmerited favor. Sarah tries to help God out by sending in the flesh, Hagar, and the law, Hagar, because the law allowed for that to happen. How does God respond to that? Keeps his promises anyway. Delivers exactly what he said he was going to deliver anyway. Unmerited favor. How about Ishmael and Isaac? Good picture of the flesh versus the spirit. Ishmael was a product of the flesh. Isaac was they waited on God and let God do what God was going to do. That's how we walk in the spirit. And so what are these lessons that we can learn? And I want you to just see them just, just quickly as you look through this passage. Hagar was Abraham's second wife, not God's first choice, amen? Abraham was supposed to have exactly one wife. Those that look at this passage and go, well, you know, it was kind of what they did culturally. Yes, culturally, they did all kinds of things. It's just like our country does all kinds of things culturally that are not okay with God, amen? There's a bunch of things that are legal that are also not okay with God, amen? So be careful when you pull out the law card because the law can lead you down a road that you shouldn't go down as far as a child of God. I can give you a ton of things that you can do. You see, but what God's saying is, look, I, I, I want you to be where I want you to be. I don't want you to take second best. I want you to have my best for you. And just like Hagar, Abraham's second wife, it was added after an act of disobedience, amen? Check this out. Why was Hagar in the picture in the first place? Because Sarah didn't trust God. Abraham didn't trust God. They're saying, well, we need to do something about this because we're kind of getting old. This isn't working out. We need to help God out. So it was an act of disobedience that brought the law into their life. It was an act of disobedience. You see, the law, Paul said already, is for the lawless. The only people that need law is those who won't live by grace. It was a result of disobedience. Hagar was never free. The whole time that Hagar is in Abraham and Sarah's family, she's never free. She's always a bond servant. You see, you can't be freed by not following the Lord, you can simply remain in bondage. You can have it your way. You can live your life at the Burger King, select a whatever you want to do in your life thing, but you have to submit 
to the will of the Lord if you want what God wants for you. Otherwise, you remain in bondage. Hagar was always a servant. Hagar was also the result of turning to the flesh. She was never meant to bear a child for Abraham. That was not God's plan. So a little word for us, don't help God out. He does not need it. He's quite capable of doing exactly what he needs to do in your life. And so again, it's a picture of the law, the flesh. The law allowed for it and the flesh prompted it. Hagar then gives birth to yet another servant. Someone who's under the heavy hand. Never was Ishmael going to be the firstborn son. Because he was born as a servant, not a free man. And ultimately, I want you to see this. Hagar is cast out because she was never truly in. The works of the law can't get you in. And then finally, Hagar dies in loneliness. She's never married again. You realize one day you're going to go to another wedding. If you're married here today, you've got another wedding coming. It's called the married supper of the Lamb if you're in Christ. Amen? <laughs> Children of the flesh don't get that. People who are cast out don't get that. They spend eternity separated from God. So this is actually a picture of our relationship with the Lord. So when the Apostle Paul says, hey, I, I want you to understand something, this is very symbolic, it's not allegorical, he's actually telling us this is what your relationship with the Lord is supposed to be like. You're never supposed to walk in the flesh, you're always supposed to walk in the spirit. You're not supposed to turn to the law, you're supposed to turn to grace. You should not be doing it your way, you should be doing it his way. The result of that is you get freed from bondage instead of being put into bondage, and instead of being in bondage because you're free, one day you're going to be married to the King of Kings and to the Lord of Lords of the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. And you won't be cast out, you're gonna be brought in not too tough to see when you actually look at it as I believe the Lord simply intended. And what does that do for us? Well, it gives us a, a tremendous amount of personal application if you want to look at it that way. Look as Christians, think about your own relationship with the Lord. Verse 30, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? If you go back to Genesis, it says cast out the bondwoman. The bondwoman whom your Bible says was the law on Mount Sinai cast out the law. No, it doesn't say become unholy. It doesn't say become unrighteous. Be very careful about what is in view here. It says that the law itself cannot be the way you relate to God. Forget it. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. So cast out the law and the flesh. What did Paul say at the, in the book of Colossians to do? Put off the old man and put on the new. Very similar principle here. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. The law and grace cannot peacefully coexist because one is your flesh trying to have supremacy and earn your relationship with God, and the other is the relationship that you have because Christ paid for your very life on Calvary's cross. They're two totally different things. We need to understand that as God's kids. 
Otherwise, we will live our lives trying to win God's approval when we already have God's approval by grace. Instead of accepting who we are by grace and through faith, we're gonna try and make our own path to God. And that's where all of this talk about legalism comes in. Because what ultimately happens is you find out you can't keep your own standards. You will fail at your own attempt to see if you can earn a right relationship with God and it brings futility. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. And so Paul speaks into our lives something we desperately need to hear in our day and time. What is this that God is speaking to you and I today? How do we solve this Hagar, Ishmael flesh problem? How do we get it? Because we all have it, amen? Anybody in here tried to change your flesh and been actually 100% effective? I haven't. I've beat my flesh. I've made promises. God, I will read through the Bible every other week. Anybody done that when you were a young believer? It's just like, you know, I'm just going to... Uh, you know, if I do this, and again, please do read through your Bible. If you can do it in a week, you'll get an award. I'll send you a certificate. But it, it's, we, we try and do things for God, right? It's like, we're just, I'm going to make up these rules, and I'm just going to go out there, and I'm going to call I'm flesh submit. And you start beating on your flesh, and you make a bunch of rules, and guess what happens? Your flesh figures out a way to get around your own rules, right? It comes up in a new place. It's kind of like the suckers on fruit trees. You cut them off. You trim the tree, and a week later, there's a new sucker comes out someplace else. That's what your flesh does. It's still inside of you. The old man is being crucified. It's being mortified. You're putting to death daily your flesh, but your flesh is very much still alive in there. And if you don't believe that, I guarantee you, you're going to get a test on this very soon. You're going to go out and there's going to be something that's really attractive to your flesh and you're going to go, ooh. I can't tell you what it is for each of you, but I know your flesh is alive. So is mine. So you have to take action and cast it out. If you, you think you can peacefully exist with your flesh, you are kidding yourself as a believer. And so the old nature pictured here in Hagar and Ishmael, they, they, they want to persecute you and bring you into bondage because here's what happens. You make up your rules, you fail at your rules, and you're like, I am such a lousy Christian. Now, let me be honest. You are a lousy Christian. <laughs> and so am I. In a sense, if you compare God's holiness to how we live, F on your forehead for failure. You know, you're not going to pass that test in, in the purest sense of the, of, of the thinking there, of the logic that that would draw you into. The good news is that's not how you're getting to heaven. Amen? You're not going to get there, and there won't be a, like a thousand-page test, and, and all of them are essay questions involving things that you did or did not do for God. It's not going to happen. You're getting to heaven because Jesus Christ died on Calvary's cross in your place and paid the price for your sin. Amen? Amen? So, so that's the picture here. So I can't compromise with that flesh. I can't say, well, you know, I'm just going to kind of let it, 
you kind of sit in there for a while. That's why holy living flows out of grace. When you actually have the grace of God, you then have the power of God. When you have the power of God, you have the victory of Christ over sin. You have to get the grace part first. If you start with the law, you will fail. You ever notice people who have a problem with legalism have very small churches. It's usually a church of one. And they can't agree with themselves about what they're supposed to do. Seriously. I've talked with people. I sat down. Well, you know, what are we supposed to, you know, and they'll tell me, well, you need to boycott this and boycott that and do this and go here and do this and do that. And, you know, you should never do this and never do that. And again, most of those things may even be something that we as children of God should actually think about as, as a believer. God cares about how we live our lives. But the problem is, is they think they're relating to God on a better level by the things they do or do not do. No, you're relating to God by one thing, and that's God's grace. Everything else revolves around that free gift. You don't have that free gift. You try and earn your own way, you're gonna come up really short. And so Paul's saying, look, we have to cast out the flesh. I have to tell my flesh, no, you're not welcome here. That's gonna hurt because some of your flesh you actually like. Some of you have learned to live with maybe bitterness or anger, maybe some hatred. It's in there, it comes from maybe your history, your family past, it could be all kinds of things. And, and that flesh is in there and you look at the flesh and it's like, oh, I don't wanna get rid of that because I get rid of that. I don't know what I'm gonna do. I might have to come to terms with my own life. And so you hang on to Hagar and Ishmael. And you try and dress them up really nice. And you say, well, that's not really my anger. That's righteous indignation, brother. Well, it kind of looked like anger when you spoke to me. And again, I'm not judging you. I've dealt with it myself. But I am saying I can tell you this. You have to cast out the flesh. You have to tell the flesh, no. Not, not welcome here. That's why these contrasts that you see in this passage are so clear. What does scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman. Why? Because just like pictured in Israel, and just like is pictured in Hagar and Ishmael and Sarah and Isaac, just like is pictured in the church, there are results of you trying to live by your flesh. There are results of you trying to earn your approval with religion. There are results that you will get from walking in the flesh and trying to make it your way, and there are results that you will get when you walk by grace through faith. You have to be careful, family, because pretty soon, if you're not walking in God's grace, and you think somehow because you've added something to, the, to that relationship with some kind of rules and regulations and laws, then you are going to end up exactly where the law got Hagar and Ishmael. You're gonna end up in an earthly Jerusalem. That earthly Jerusalem got destroyed in AD 70, didn't it? It's no longer here. The law doesn't even exist as far as the Jewish people are concerned in the way that they're supposed to relate to it. They don't have a temple to go offer sacrifice in. So now it's all symbolic. It's like, well, we can't actually do that, so we'll live some other way. No, God actually asked for them to go to Jerusalem. So how did you work that out? Well, we just make a few more rules. 
We'll change a few things that we can do. We'll, we'll, we'll lower the standard until we can meet it. That's exactly what your flesh does. And ultimately, that puts you into bondage. And, and in that relationship, that legalism, those rules become so unbelievably hard. My rules for me are always the hardest on myself. I, I make up my own little rules and then you know what happens? I fail at my own little rule that I created and guess what comes into my life? Condemnation, doubt, fear. I think God hates me. I think he thinks I'm a failure. Now look, make no mistake about it. In that sense, all of us are failures. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So that is actually partially true. The good news is that's not how God sees you in Christ Jesus. But that's not because you're a good law keeper. That's because the grace of God's been poured out in your life. And ultimately, that results in a different kind of relationship, and it results in freedom. And before anyone thinks the wrong thing, it is not freedom to sin. It is freedom from sin. You're no longer under that weight. You, you are not any longer held in bondage by the rules. You see, the rules cause you then to look at things and go, well, that's not sin to me. My anger's okay, because I got holy anger. I do righteous thievery from my job every single day. You know, because my boss takes advantage of me. Can I tell you, I've listened to that story an awful lot. People trying to explain to me why they're stealing from their employer is okay with God. You see, we like laws, don't we? We run back to the law when we live by the law. But I run back to grace when I live by grace. It's like, oh God, pour out your grace on me. I am a sinner and I'm so grateful that I have a savior. So family, what's the secret to all this? That's where Paul goes next. The final two chapters are this amazing walk that we have by walking in the spirit, the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And so the tale of two covenants I'm taking the second one, the new one, amen? I'm gonna walk in grace. I believe that grace is gonna make me more like Jesus than less like Jesus. Did you hear what I said? I believe that grace is gonna make me more like Jesus rather than less like Jesus. I do not believe that a child of God, the Apostle Paul says, grace abounds, but it does not abound so much that I can go on sinning. If I actually understand the grace of God, then it's gonna make me more like Jesus. But because I understand God's grace, I also know that I'm no longer under the weight and the penalty of the law. I'll take that new covenant. I'll take that grace. I'll take that walk of faith. And as we walk in it, here's the beautiful thing. God's grace is actually transformative, isn't it? Anybody experience that? God's transforming grace in your life to where you used to be one way and you're no longer that way, but you're not all the way to where you're gonna go, but you're a lot further along than you were before. That's just transforming grace in your life. That's God at work. You may not be all the way home yet. I'm not. But I'm a whole lot closer than I used to be. And praise the Lord for it. That's what grace does in your life. The law leads you failing. Grace will lead you to victory. 
and let's walk in that grace. Amen? Would you stand and we'll close in prayer? I want to encourage you, if you need prayer for anything, prayer room's open. Maybe you're struggling still with just some things in your life where you think you need to approve, get God's approval uh, and then he'll, he'll love you. No, he loves you right where you're at. He does want you to change. He has things he wants to do in your life, but make no mistake, if you're God's child, you're his child by grace. And that's gonna cause you to walk in faith and that's gonna keep you from walking in the flesh. Amen? Father, thank you for that truth the tale of these two covenants, Lord. We don't want to return again unto bondage. We thank you for the freedom that we have because your grace has made us free. Now, Lord, help us to walk in that grace. And as we do that, we know we're not gonna turn to the flesh. We're gonna turn away from the flesh. And so, Father, we thank you for lovingly correcting us and at the same time uh, making that yoke easy and that burden light. Lord, we used to be in bondage. And as we cast out the bondage in our own lives, Lord, as we say no uh, to the rulership of the law and our own flesh and our own decisions, and we say yes to your grace, Lord, would you strengthen us to walk with you and cause us to do, uh, Lord, all that you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.